The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 127 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in this show are my own and not that my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before I get started, I remind our listeners, you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. H-U-B.com. So we're going to get right to the show this week because we just got a lot to talk about. And we're going to have my good friend and current chairman and founder of Signet, Mr. Robert Rodriguez, on the show with us this evening. And Robert is the chairman and founder of the Security Innovation Network, otherwise known as Signet. And Signet's mission is to advance innovation and enable global collaboration between the public and private sectors to defeat cybersecurity threats. So Sinet serves as the nucleus that connects the builders, the buyers, the researchers, and the investors in the cybersecurity lifecycle, in the cybersecurity domain. So before creating Sinet, Robert served over 22 years as a special agent with the United States Secret Service. His executive protection experience spanned 10 years at the White House, serving Presidents Ronald Reagan, George Bush, William Clinton, and numerous heads of state. During his career, he held a number of leadership roles within the Executive Protection, Protective Intelligence, Inspection, and Criminal Investigation Divisions that has given him a wide array of leadership experience with different investigative and protective domains. So we got a lot to talk about this evening. Um, There's a jam-packed show, so we're going to get right to it. Here we go. So it's my pleasure to welcome back to the show the chairman and founder of the Security Innovation Network, Mr. Robert Rodriguez. Robert, welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio. George, great to be back. I hope you've been well. Hey, I'm doing well, thanks. I hope you and the family are doing well, too. I, uh, look, we've been working real closely for a while now. We've known each other for a long time, and we're very familiar with Task Force 7 and Signet and, and our partnership, but our listeners might not be. Right, so it, they might not be, uh, they might not know exactly what Signet does. So most people who leave the government don't become an entrepreneur right out of the gate. It doesn't happen. It doesn't. It, there's not really a lot of examples of that, and even less people are really successful at it. Just like when you look at the statistics for entrepreneurship, I think they're just outrageous. Like what is it, 80, 90 percent of these companies fail. So let's just start out from the beginning and let's set some uh, groundwork for our listeners. Why did you start out to create Sinet? Well, the opportunity happened in 2001, December 18th, when I was uh, when I arrived in San Francisco at the end of my career, the last two and a half years, were to run the operations for Northern California and also build out a public-private partnership in cyber. Back then, they were calling it IT security. Right. And these were congressional mandates. So there were nine cities that were selected due to a congressional mandate after 9-11, where these cities, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, et cetera, would have these um, task forces and community and build a community designed to build trust with the corporations. Because at the time, a lot of the corporations would self-heal, or call law firms or accounting firms to solve a criminal matter. But we wanted to try to change that. And so that was really the, the beginning of uh, the task force and that community that we built out with 
academia and venture capital and corporates and entrepreneurs. And it was the precursor for what today is Synet. So this is really interesting. And, you know, a lot of, there's times when people, there's times in people's lives where something triggers or happens to them and it just sort of changes the course or direction of their career or their life really in general. Was there some type of motivating force behind creating what is now, I think is one of the most powerful and in many ways the most influential networks in the world and has really uh, put you as one of the most connected people in the world in terms of the cybersecurity industry? What type of motivating force was there? Was something, did something happen or did something click? Yeah, I had an aha moment, uh, January 2001. I was having dinner with Bob Weaver right by World Trade Center. Hadn't seen him in a while. We were on the president's SWAT team, CAP team. He was a team leader, and then he left, and I took over his team as a team leader, Team 6. And he, uh, he went on to New York, and from there I, I uh, went to President's Detail and then President Clinton, and then from there I was um, – tasked to go over to the inspection division. And in January 2001, we had a 10-day visit to the New York field office to do an inspection. And uh, one of the nights we, we took off and had dinner to catch up. And I said, what have you been doing? I haven't seen you in a while. And he says, well, I'm building out this public-private partnership. It's uh, ECTF. Um, I've got all these, these corporations and academics and we have these quarterly meetings and uh, we have like three, 400 people coming to these meetings. And so we went into more detail about it was, but I literally, I remember we were in the bar eating cause we wanted to smoke cigars. And as I was sitting there, I got a chill up my spine <laughs> and I thought, wow, if I could ever build something like what you're doing, Bob, I'll be your biggest advocate. Well, nine months later, I'm promoted to San Francisco field office. And, uh, and uh, when I arrived in December of that year with my family, we immediately started building out a community with a guy named Greg Crabb who was over at Postal. And, you know, the U.S. Postal and the Secret Service have a historic, uh, trusted, long-standing relationship going back for many years. And then a, a gentleman named Jim Dill, another agent. And so we started off with three people and built this, this community to like three, 400 people by the time I retired in June of 2004. But what really was the, the moment was realizing that as I looked at Silicon Valley and the entrepreneurial spirit in the Valley from the VCs to the entrepreneurs to the corporates, it, it, it immediately grabbed me. And I became um, passionate about building this community. Actually, I just fell in love with the entrepreneurial spirit of Silicon Valley. Hmm. And what's what's really interesting to me is when I was in San Francisco in the 90s, from 92 to 98, before I went back to the White House, I was uh, working undercover, uh, working executive protection movements when the president would come in, uh, protective intelligence. But I was so mission-focused that I didn't pay attention to business and and what was happening in the Valley and, and, and et cetera. I was just mission down, head down. The second time, I was head up and paying attention to the community. And then we started building a community similar to what Bob Weaver had built in, in New York City. And so we were having our quarterly meetings. We'd have like 300 people at these meetings. And uh, a very cohesive um, group of professionals from corporations, from entrepreneurs, from academics, from venture capitalists, from law enforcement. It was very uh, robust. And, and at the time, public-private partnerships were words that were maligned uh, because they were non-productive. They, did, they never really had a deliverable. And, and so this is one of the first times that I had seen um, a public-private partnership work. Well, that's an amazing story. And, you know, when I think back about, you know, what Bob did for all of us by, you know, paving the way and taking the heat and really just creating that structure. I mean, I was uh, – in Newark and one of the co-founders of the ECTF in Newark. And I wouldn't have been able to have that opportunity if it wasn't for people like Bob and yourself who, uh, you know, created these ECTFs and, and showed the value of that capability in these public private partnerships. I mean, you and I obviously were in the secret service together and I venture to say that your time 
at the Secret Service really helped shape your view of the world, uh, as it did for me, for sure. So could you tell me a little bit about your time there, what you did more specifically, and then how it helped shape your opinions of the challenges that we're facing today in, in cybersecurity? Because a lot of Secret Service agents, former Secret Service agents, are in the cybersecurity industry, whether it be a commercial, an academia, or whatever, but a lot of them made that transition. You know, how did it shape your world and your view of the world, I should say? I'm happy to answer that. First, I just want to address uh, Bob Weaver one more time. You know, and I think you've seen this and others have seen this. When you have a change agent that goes against the norms of government or a corporation uh, philosophy or, or business and, and goes out of the, the rails, sometimes um, headquarters doesn't like that. And even though he had tremendous success, they, they pushed back on him and even on, on me because I was aligned with him. But it was so powerful after 9-11 that within 48 hours, Bob Weaver and his community of 500, 600 people were back up and operational. Within 48 hours, they had office space. They had computers hooked up. I mean, CEOs from the stock exchange and, and others were helping them get back up and running. He didn't have to go to the yellow pages and, and look for uh, help. He had these pre-existing trusted relationships. He had a Rolodex that was amazing. And that story uh, got out to Capitol Hill and Bob testified. And that's the reason why there were congressional mandates that other cities, those nine cities I mentioned, have a task force similar built on the model that Bob Weaver had created and led. Um, so in terms of lessons learned from civil service, I think the first and the most important one was um, mission, uh, loyalty to um, your uh, colleagues, a very purpose-driven um, law enforcement community. And we also had a brand. Um, I don't know if you remember, George, but it was on the walls of all the offices, and it was worthy of trust and confidence. And it was created by Lou Merletti after um, – the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton uh, incident where a lot of the agents were uh, called in to testify. And we were concerned about it at the time that if we can't get close enough where the president trusts us enough to do our job, then it's going to be really difficult. Uh, we want the president to be able to say, um, talk about things in national security or maybe about their daughter or, you know, some situation in high school, or whatever, yet you can't, you can't operate unless we are worthy of trust and confidence. And, and I've taken that, that statement and pretty much lived it. Um, that was one of the most powerful things that I took away and the sense of a purpose-driven community and a mission. And I incorporated that into Signet. So Signet is a very mission purpose-driven community. Our mission is to advance innovation, to defeat global cybersecurity threats, um, and then protect the integrity of the brand at all costs, and money last. And I found that doing one and two um, has been just a fantastic, wonderful uh, way to do business. And, and along those lines, in any business, right, integrity, transparency, high ethics, uh, those are paramount and you can't, you can't replace that. So those, those are my takeaways. Sure. You know, you know, flying air force one and Marine one. And I remember the time we were, it was the day that JFK um, was buried up in New York and it was in uh, July, of, I think 2000 or so. And the president came back um, and my shift took him to Cincinnati for a fundraiser. And then on, from there, we were supposed to go to uh, uh, Denver and switch planes and then go on to uh, Aspen on these uh, smaller, these G4s. Well, on the way to Cincinnati, the president came back to Larry Cockle and I, we were in the back talking and he says, hey, um, now we're going to Rabat, uh, Morocco, because King Hassan had died. And Larry turned to me and says, okay, well, we're only taking one shift. You're going to get off the plane tonight in Denver, spend the night, then you uh, fly to 
fly home, get some sleep on Saturday and meet me at Andrews at 8 p.m. and fly all night, work all day, and then fly home uh, that same night. Um, it's a long, longer story, but I do remember as I was walking up the steps to Air Force One in, in Rabat, Morocco, looking at a full moon and how bright and beautiful it was, the clear sky at about 10 o'clock at night or so. And then I got home and my wife Heather was up and uh, she'd been waiting for me. It was about 3 a.m. when I got home. Same night though, right? Because of time, time difference, made up some time coming home. And she got me a, a beer and uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale to be exact. And I was sitting there looking out the window and I said, hey, um, you see that moon out there? She said, yeah. It's the same moon I saw tonight in Morocco. I mean, so those kind of, I mean, there's a bunch of stories like that, but that's not what this show is about. It's just an example of some of the experiences, some of the history you see being made as an agent. And somewhere in there, you carry those with you on into the future. Maybe it's, maybe it's a sense of confidence, but a quiet sense of confidence um, that's within your persona. No doubt. It was a, definitely an interesting career there. And it's amazing how it shapes your view of the world and everything you do afterward. And I, and I, we talk a lot about collaboration and we can't get anywhere without collaborating. I mean, the, the bad guys, the cyber organized crime groups and the nation states that are, that are out there collaborating with each other, like fortune 500 companies with no regulatory exams and no audits and no red tape. But we have to collaborate in a very different way. We have to play by the rules and we have to help each other and we have to abide by a host of all kinds of regulatory uh, laws and, and, uh, and rules. So how important is collaboration between the triangle of private sector, public sector, and academia in this cybersecurity battle that we seem to be fighting every day? Well, first, you're seeing tremendous collaboration live today with COVID-19. When the president and the White House and the State Department and the other government agencies, DOD, Department of Homeland Security, NSF, partnering with the far, big pharma, with Walgreens, with, with suppliers, with Walmart, um, everybody. I mean, this is one of the greatest public-private partnerships I've seen in a long time. Um, and you can go back to uh, uh, 9-11 and the great PPPs that happened then. In World War II, the atomic bomb. Just it, when you do it and you do it right, it is impressive. And it's unfortunate, though, it seems to be that the greatest public-private partnerships are accomplished and delivered with excellence during the most difficult times of life, during these just unbelievable crises that we, we have. And in cybersecurity, although we have fantastic public-private partnerships, we really do. If you look at what Chris Krebs and Kirsten Nielsen have led over the years at DHS and with uh, the, you know, the CISA, and then what uh, Kieran Martin in the United Kingdom with NCSC and what Canada is doing with Scott Jones as their leader, off cyber in, in Australia, um, they're, they're all getting there. Um, now, are we perfect? Absolutely not. But, but I'm pretty optimistic and I'm very um, positive about the inroads that we've made. I think one of the challenges for the government and cybersecurity with the public-private partnerships are they, they make the announcements and they make some fantastic recommendations However, they don't have a marketing arm or sustainability on the messaging. So if you were Google or Facebook or GE or Ford, whoever, you have marketing arms. You have entities out there that are the ability of that noise and message that needs to be heard by that particular audience. And so I think we're missing that piece. I think that we have we need to have more boots on the ground in the various communities that are some of our power centers for our nation's critical infrastructure, right? Manufacturing, 
uh, whether it's uh, energy, telecom, oil and gas, banking and finance. I'm not saying that these uh, boots on the ground have to be everywhere, but strategically in Charlotte and New York, for example, in banking and finance would be what um, would create a greater deliverable towards communication, collaboration, and consistent um, relationship building on critical infrastructure uh, sectors. The other area that is um, we're missing a little bit, I mean, DHS and you've got um, NQTEL, uh, you've got uh, DOD, DIUX on the ground here in Silicon Valley. I think we could have more here. And, and th- that was my aha moment really is being an on the ground as a government employee, as a secret service agent, working with venture capitalists and entrepreneurs and learning their language and their culture because I was, I didn't know anything. I knew zero about that environment um, until I came back December 18, 2001. But obviously the collaboration is more important with public-private partnerships today than ever. Yeah, no doubt. And, and I guess the result and the desired outcome of those partnerships is, you know, part of it is innovation, creativity, innovation, uh, new solutions to, to help solve these problems, integrating emerging technologies. And a lot of, a lot of Fortune 500 companies have created what they call innovation centers. Those cyber innovation centers, a lot of them call CICs. A lot of these centers are actually in Israel for some of the bigger companies. They have a ton of them out there. So if, if you go out there and visit, you could actually go from one innovation center to another. And the role of those innovation centers are to make sure that the company they represent understands all the vendors that are in the marketplace, all the solutions that are in the marketplace, because the solutions market is just overwhelmed with you know, thousands of companies now. And it's so difficult and to try to navigate through this minefield of of, of companies uh, all over the place um, and what, and, and to compare them to see what's the best solution for your company, not only the best solution in general, but for your specific company and your needs, you know, what, what systems would be able to integrate with your legacy systems and what systems that you're using today, because the best systems that are out there are not, don't always fit in, in larger companies who are using older, older computer systems and their infrastructure. And, and it, it's not always compatible. So there's a lot of scalability problems and things like that. But we talk a lot about advancing innovation in the cyber market. And, and there's always that conflicting uh, goal of you know, execution and timeliness as well. Can you share your thinking on how you create value for your community through innovation and creativity and execution at Signet? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I do want to touch on Israel. I've been there about four or five times, spoken at some of their uh, their big events, Cyber Week and their, their uh, Tech Summit. They've done a fantastic job of exporting innovation into the U.S. market in particular. They, um, I feel that they have greater diversity than we do in America. Um, and that a lot of the... Um, Companies are started by former like, 8200 or government Intel folks uh, that have an, a, a, just already have an understanding of risk and threat and, and what have you. And so they'll come out to the U.S. and to the Valley and raise capital, um, uh, start a, an office, hire employees, and, um, and continue to give back to the community in, in Israel. And I also think that because they're an island of, of 360-degree uh, risk uh, 24-7, that the culture there is um, different in the sense that they're um, always at risk. And I think when you're at risk, it creates uh, greater innovation. I remember um, somebody from the government, from the intelligence community said, we are most creative and innovative when we have less money uh, because you have to. Uh, so um, in terms of value, you have to think of the ecosystem of any small business. So if you think of um, a wagon wheel and in the middle is a hub and the hub are companies. Now the, this hub 
can be interchangeable. It can be robotics, it can be medical device. But in our world here at Cynet and the world that I'm, I'm working in, it's all about cybersecurity. But what's not interchangeable are those spokes that lead to the advancement of innovation. So on one spoke on the outside, you've got risk capital, venture, private equity, angel. Another one might be investment banking for those companies lucky to have an exit. Policy is another one. Academia for those companies that can collaborate and see the vision to collaborate with people that are very smart. Because I believe that when you bring hard problems to smart people is when you create your centers of excellence. Law firms protect companies as they mature and grow. You can even throw in real estate. As companies grow, they need more space. But at the end of the day, the, the only thing that really matters are the buyers. That spoke of industry and government, CIO, C, CISO, CSO, CIRO, they're the ones that matter. And if you think of that ecosystem I just mentioned, I think of three things that I focus on. Knowing every global buyer in the world, every innovator, and every investor. Now, getting to know the entrepreneurs and innovators is more of a demand pool, because when you help um, entrepreneurs, every stage of merging with companies, they talk and then they follow, because they know that there's something out there that can enable their business. Um, and then the, the investors, the VCs, um, they're always interested in deal flow, right? So they want to be part of that ecosystem. But it's really the buyers that are driving and building markets. It's not the entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are, will create a market, but they don't drive and build markets. So for the entrepreneur, they need to figure out how to get from nice to have to need to have and in order to move the needle, to increase their valuations and their success for uh, potential exit. So again, it's the buyer, the innovator, and the investor that really are the, the key components within that ecosystem. And for example, what I like to do when I build an agenda is I try to put on as many buyers on stage versus consultants or retired generals, because once the company raised the capital, they only care about one thing, and that's getting to the buyers. And so I want to create an environment that is trusted so we don't sell speaking spots and sign it. We don't sell, we don't sell vendor booths. We want to create an environment that is, that the ambiance is comfortable, that it's trusted, that everyone in the room understands that there's a, a purpose-driven community there that um, is very mission-focused. I don't want the CISOs walking around and turning their badge around. And they don't, frankly. They actually will, um, will talk to the entrepreneurs and vice versa, to the VCs and what have you. And we've also been able to create a well-edited program of high-level executives, everything from over the years, the CEO of uh, BNY Mellon Bank, Gerald Hassel, uh, Bob Dudley just retired from BP. Um, he keynoted in London, Gavin Patterson when he was CEO of BT, uh, Kirsten Nielsen before she retired, um, Admiral Rogers, uh, former director of uh, NSA, uh, General Kelly was at one of our public-private partnership dinners at Ambassador DeRoche's residence in, London, in D.C. a couple of years ago. Um, so in between the, the events, I'll, I'll do these public-private partnership dinners, but which are really designed to continue and maintain the relationship building and the trust that's so needed in, in this community. So it's having a global platform where entrepreneurs can go to London or to Toronto or New York or DC and land and strategically think about this. You don't have to build a beachfront. You can just go in, test the waters, see who you meet. And if you have value add as an entrepreneur, you're going to get that meeting. You're going to get that product purchased. And you're also probably going to get funding. But it's up to you to provide your value. We're just providing the platform for the business of cyber to take place. So there's so many different entities in this cybersecurity ecosystem. How do you raise awareness with them all? How do you get their attention? 
Well, one, one way is through content and thought leadership, right? So bringing the best and brightest. Uh, what I like to do at our programs is also include government speakers. So I mentioned Chris Krebs earlier or Kirsten Nielsen or Emma Rogers or Kieran Martin over in London to, to uh, deliver their announcements, right? To share what their priorities are with their national strategies, uh, give them a, a sounding, uh, a sounding board and a, and a stage to deliver their message. Another way for, for small business is the sign at 16 innovation award. We've done 10 years of these. Uh, last year we had 163 companies apply from 18 different countries, all under 15 million in revenue. They get a, um, they get six minutes on stage at the national press club in November. They get free PR, free coaching, free marketing. It's all free. Um, and what's, what's really beautiful about this opportunity is even if they don't win, they fill out an application. It's about three pages. Um, are you, are you venture backed? Are you, um, a number of patents? Who's your executive team? What's your, what's your uh, solution? Who's your, um, uh, com- competition, et cetera. And the judges review these um, applications. Now I have a hundred judges and they represent everything from Ted Schlein at Kleiner Perkins and NEA and Andreessen Horowitz and, and my little venture firm, Signway Ventures to a lot of CISOs from industry, government, um, people from NSA, DOD, DHS, they're the judges. Now they donate their time over the summer uh, for a couple months, I don't ask them to review 163 companies. I break them into teams. So there's a team leader and an assistant team leader. And the review, depending on the math, like 23 companies the first round and the next round might be 10. But these companies are getting exposure. And if you think about innovation and how do you advance innovation, it's simplistic. Innovation is really about having awareness that technology exists to better society. That's it. And so these companies, the awareness of their solution is being raised. Uh, they may not make the second cut or they may not be selected to sign at 16, but there might be somebody on that judging committee that's going to bring them in for a meeting, either to buy the product or maybe invest in them. I've seen it numerous times happen. And over the years, the sign at 16 winners, the first year was FireEye. Uh, 2010, uh, CrowdStrike, Silence, Phantom. Um, we've had a lot of companies that have gone either public or been acquired. All right, Robert, we've got to take a short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with our special guest, the chairman and founder of the Security Innovation Network, Mr. Robert Rodriguez. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. 
The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the chairman and founder of Signet, Mr. Robert Rodriguez. So, Robert, so we know a ton of entrepreneurs uh, in this space, and they seem to all come from Silicon Valley for some reason. I don't know why. And I think about one-third of the country's VCs are out there. And uh, when I say out there, I'm in New York, you're in San Francisco. How important are the entrepreneurs and venture capitalists in the cybersecurity ecosystem, especially considering all these challenges we have on a daily basis, which seem to just get more challenging by the day? Well, obviously, they're, they're very important, but not just in cybersecurity business, but in, in different uh, sectors, right? You know, healthcare and, and banking and finance with fintech is absolutely um, huge stimulus to the economy and job creation and job growth. And it's one of the things that drives me um, and creating uh, and building out this community is because they're, I mentioned earlier, the ecosystem of an entrepreneur, right? So three entities that are the most important are the innovators, the investors, and the buyers. Uh, and and in, in cybersecurity, because to me, cybersecurity has become like the air we breathe. It touches everything. Where blockchain might touch something, robotics might touch another area. But we want, if we are to have a secure, robust, re- resilient, redundant, trusted, safe operating system, you must have elements of cybersecurity to protect our critical infrastructure, to protect our national security and economic interests, to protect our inherent rights as free citizens 
and a free democracy or privacy. Uh, absolutely. And I, I do believe that cybersecurity is it's one of the most critical sectors uh, in the marketplace today. So with all these entrepreneurs out there, what do you, what do you think when you talk to them? What do they really care about the most? And, are, are not, and do they care about the right things? So what are the things that you think they should care about? And do they really care about those things when they're trying to create their companies? It's a great question. Because Heather and I, um, we deal with entrepreneurs. And Heather runs a company with me uh, frequently on a daily basis. We see good culture. We see bad culture. We see in-between culture. What, what it's come down to is vendor fatigue. And it's caused the, the CISOs, the buyers, to become recluse. The bad culture, the bad messaging, the bad marketing. I think CEOs of companies need to pay attention to their marketing teams because they're hurting their brand. Um, I think old school uh, marketing approaches of metrics and um, phone calls and emails, uh, delusion in the box of, of the CISO, for example, uh, are being deleted in this space of capital, I believe. The, the CISO today is doing more business um, amongst referrals with their trusted colleagues in the industry. It's coming down to the word trust. And if you think about the word trust, I talk about it a lot. I talk a lot about importance of good culture, strong culture. Um, globally, the word trust has been impacted from media, the media, who do you trust on the media, social media, nation state uh, disinformation campaigns, vendors saying they can do X, Y, and Z when maybe they can only say or, or accomplish uh, one. Um, let me just share an interesting brief story. I was interviewing five big, big corporate CISOs for United Kingdom. Um, they had a delegation during RSA at the Consul General, British Consul General's office. It's about 30, 35, 40 um, CEOs of young British companies. And so I was interviewing the CISOs. And then one of the entrepreneurs said, so how do we get above all the noise? We're here at RSA and you know, it's crowded, the space is crowded. And, and this one gentleman said, I hate to say this, but just be honest. Just be a transparent, honest businessman. And um, don't come in and say that you've got the silver bullet. Don't come in and tell me what you have without listening to what I need and what my story is. Uh, try to understand what we're doing as a, as a, as a company at the bank, um, and just start building rapport, start building trust. So it comes down to basic fundamentals. And a lot of companies are missing that. Yet there are some out there that are fantastic, right? They have great culture, great CEO, great leadership. And it comes down from the top, the power of one. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was just talking to someone who is a, you know, I guess you could say a professional salesman. Um, they're very high level in a, in, a, in a company that's doing very, very well in the cybersecurity marketplace, and they're in charge of generating revenue. And they basically told me that uh, they sell by not selling. They don't sell. They don't sell. His, 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 his thinking was, hey, look, if you're not interested in the product, you don't want the product, then don't buy it. <laughs> right? And he's not interested in trying to convince you to buy it. He shows the value. And like you said, they have to be able to show this value. And it's not as easy to do this as, as you know, I just said, right? It's very difficult not to sell if your job is to, you know, get business development uh, and, and, and generate, generate revenue in business, right? It's, it's a lot harder than, it's, than, it's, than it seems. Would you agree? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think it's so. It's easy to say, "Oh, just you sell by not selling," but it's really a it's a technique. It's a posture. It's a it's it's a confidence. It's about influence, persuasion. It's about negotiation too, in some degree, um, and developing this sort of trust and and in uh, developing a good relationship with the people that you want to do business with. Um, look, 
cybersecurity is huge out there right now. I got to ask you this question. I got to ask you. I mean, and it, it, it just seems to be getting bigger and bigger. Do you think cybersecurity is the biggest threat to our national security? I would have said um, two months ago, yes. Right now, I, I think uh, COVID-19 is to economic and our national security. But uh, other than that, I do believe it because it is the underpinnings of everything that we touch that, you know, from our military to our, again, our critical infrastructure to our privacy. I mean, there's, there's nothing out there that I know of that touches all different angles of business and society than cyber. Yeah, I would agree. Um, obviously, right now, it's just a very unique times. So, I mean, um, you know, everyone I talk to, nobody's been through this before. You know, nobody's been through this before. And um, I heard that there was some hospitals out there that were dealing with this issue and, and also under, uh, under, was undertaking a cyber attack at the same time. And, you know, I mean, what, what a challenge, right, to, to deal with this and, every, and to try to care for all these people and deal with this crisis and this pandemic and then have a cyber attack on go at the same time. It's just terrible, absolutely terrible. And so these are, these are definitely challenging times, but I'm, I'm really confident that we're going to pull together and get through this and come out the other side much, much better. Um, having said that, you know, we're looking forward now, right, into 2020. Hopefully, this will be a deep V sort of uh, graph where you see a, you know, a, 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 a very hard rebound from not only from economically, but also um, you'll see the longer, uh, the longer graph where you see, you know, it won't spike real high with the COVID-19 uh, virus, but, and everything will come back out the other side. And by the end of the summer, we'll be, we'll be cooking with gas again. What do you see from the cybersecurity perspective moving into 2020 and then beyond? First, and this too shall pass. I do see the communities coming together. Um, I've been watching the news with the White House and what I mentioned earlier, the supply chain, um, pharma, um, Walmart, uh, just everybody coming together. People singing in the streets of Madrid and in Rome, uh, everything from the cyber community in particular um, coming together and and I, I, I do feel though that people are a little frozen right now and they're concerned, well, should I invite somebody to go to a meeting, um, host an event, uh, people are a little frozen and, you know, soon is it too insensitive? Um, so it's, it's really interesting that my inbox is a lot quieter this week. Uh, and I, I went running today to the bridge. It's a different crowd out there. It's, you know, there's a lot of work from home now. And a lot of the CISOs are very, very busy securing that environment, right? Um, and, and trying to still be productive. But I think on the positive side, along with the community coming closer together, you sometimes wonder if there's a reason for this. Because it's, it's really the first time that I've stopped to take a breath. Um, if, if this wasn't happening, I'd be full bore. I'd be hosting my public private partnership dinner next week, our Silicon Valley Entrepreneurs Forum, April 2nd, which would be our 15th annual. Be hosting a dinner in Parliament on April 30th, a workshop for entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley Bank in London, uh, April 29th, and you know, preparing for June 18, New York. I would just kept going, but no, it was just, I guess, a nice slowdown. Uh, apparently the skies are less polluted. The canals in Venice are, are cleaner. The fish are visible. You know, seeing more people spending time with family and spring cleaning our inboxes. And, you know, and in a way it's better prepare us for a future pandemic and it, you know, the way we're washing our hands and enhancing our hygiene. So I always, with, with all that, I always, I always see positive. I do see good. 
Yeah, and I think everyone's trying to make the best of it when you think about, you know, quarantine and, and, and the kids are home and you're trying to homeschool them and then you have opportunities to teach them things that you never really had time to, to teach them before. You get to you get to things a lot of quicker now. And uh, if anybody, like I always had a lot of respect for teachers, but I, I always thought that they were just so underpaid. And but right now, everyone, everyone at home who's homeschooling these kids, especially if they have three, four or five kids, they are really, really missing those teachers right now. <laughs> Look, we got to take a short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with our special guest, the chairman and founder of Cynet, Mr. Robert Rodriguez. Whatever you do, don't go away, folks. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Cynet, S-I-N-E-T. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the chairman and founder of Signet, Mr. Robert Rodriguez. So, Robert, I want to talk to you a little bit about all the spend that is out there in the industry. And I know people say, oh, there's a lot of money right now and this and that. And there's people, other people are saying there's a bubble. I know Mark Cuban's always talking about the cybersecurity bubble. I happen to think there's a bubble because I've been talking to a lot of um, the VCs out there. I've been talking to a lot of entrepreneurs and investors. And it just seems to me like there's so many things being funded that, you know, when I look at them, and I don't see them surviving. It's just really, it's a really, really difficult atmosphere. And if this bubble breaks, you're going to see, you know, not not dozens, but probably thousands of companies uh, really just disappear. Um, but but I want to get your opinion. It, it, what do you see about the spending? I mean, it's just the spending is off. The projected spending is off the charts. Do you see it continuing to grow? Is the, it going to continue the trend in this way, or what's going to happen? I believe the trend will continue. There's a tremendous amount of, of capital out there, or there was and uh, up to a couple months ago. It's going to slow down, obviously. Everything's going to slow down. IPOs, uh, M&A will slow down. But going up into January of this last year, there were 55 transactions completed that totaled $2.9 billion. Um, 18 transactions and financing, um, and 37 transactions totaling $565 million. Last year's about 15.3 in M&A and about $6.7 billion in uh, venture or investing. So this, this January market, uh, or these January numbers, obviously will go down, but at that time, they were on on trend beat last year's record-breaking numbers. Um, so once things settle down, um, hopefully get back on track with, with a robust market. I mean, if you think about just what happened in December with F5 buying shape for $1 billion, uh, Armis was bought by Insight Venture Partners for $1.1 billion at a, at a outrageous multiple. Uh, CrowdStrike went public, and uh, Silence was acquired last year, $1.4 billion by BlackBerry. So it is a it is a very robust market. I do see the buyers wanting more of the mini platform approach versus the point solution. However, in talking to many of the CISOs, they still are open to uh, early adoption of nimble, innovative point solutions that can address some of their pain points. So do you think there's a bubble out there though? Do you think do you think there's a bubble or you don't? You think it's just going to keep going? I think there's a bubble. I just don't know when or where. That, and I don't think many people do. No. I'm talking about a market and a place that it's just, it's almost like cat and mouse with the adversary, right? We're just always trying to stay ahead of them. And now we got this, this new um, risk with work to home. Um, not that it's new. It's just that pretty much every employer and every CISO and CIO has had is sidetracked from doing their normal job since to secure the environment for work to home and all the things that come with it. So it'll change the marketplace a little bit uh, for the time being. Um, moving forward into the next six months to year, um, probably get back to, to some normalcy, I believe, uh, in terms of the bubble. Um, I can't predict that one. 
So one thing I wanted to ask you about, and it has to do with, you know, conducting business and bringing people together, uh, connecting people together, and eventually that ends up in sales and business transactions and financial transactions and such. But what I want to ask you is I, I was sitting down having some breakfast with uh, some, um, some sales folks um, from a very big company. And they were telling me that, and they're international company, so they do business in Europe and they do business in Australia, uh, some in Asia, I believe. And they were telling me specifically in the United States that no one picks up the phone anymore. No one returns their calls. And I remember, you know, uh, years ago when, when, when I was younger, we were growing up, we were told that, hey, not returning a phone call was very discourteous. Like people, now you have text message. No one really, no one really leaves a voicemail anymore. I mean, you know, I don't know who does that. Everybody usually just texts, right? People don't return their texts. People that know, have known each other for years and, and you know, they, they say, hey, you know, uh, Joe, you know, how you doing or whatever, like, you know, nothing, nothing. And they're saying that it's a really big problem and it's not that way in some other countries. And we talked about the reason for that. One was just vendor overload. All right. I mean, they're just being inundated. People are being inundated, the decision makers, with just a ton of email and text messages and phone calls from vendors of all types. And they just can't sift through it anymore. They just can't deal with it. And they're not unable to function and process all that information and return all these calls. It's just impossible. Um, and then, you know, social media and some other things that we, that we spoke about in terms of why, you know, this is happening. Um, but they, they basically said that it's become a problem. So it's not, it's not enough just to have a, a, a relationship, a, a good solid business relationship with people. At some point, you really have to have those really close personal relationships with people for them to even return your call. You know, I mean, it's amazing, you know, he was saying, well, we're connected to these people on LinkedIn. We reach out to them. They're our first connection and you know, we don't hear any back, back from them. You know, what's the, what's the sense of being connected to someone as a first connection on LinkedIn if you're not going to even return their inquiries or just, you know, say, you know, see what they want or what's the, what's the even, what's the even sense at some point, just disconnect from those people. That's the message we should start sending. Like if you don't want to, if you don't want to talk to other folks, pretty soon you will find yourself on an island. I, I believe at some point, you know, when it, when it, and because you won't be in that job forever, you'll be changed different jobs and go different things. You'll have different priorities. You know, maybe you'll be on the sales side someday. I don't know. Um, instead of the, uh, instead of the, uh, the buyer side, right. Or maybe it's vice versa. Maybe you're on the sales side and no one returns a call. And then when you're a buyer, you're like, oh, you remember that. And next thing you know, you know, you're like, I'm not returning any of your calls because I remember, you know, what it was like. And you know, people, it's human nature. I think, what do you think about that? Well, I think you mentioned a vendor, um, overload, data overload on top of it. I think people just inundated with text, LinkedIn, email, uh, phone calls. And then on the, with the vendor, the vendors have lost credibility. I, I touched on their marketing teams and what have you. Um, it's just noise, not only noise, but just um, bad noise. And so it, you, sometimes you might get, if they're not familiar with your name or, or text number or whatever, it's probably going to ignore you. So it's created a, um, you know, kind of a very unsocial um, and to a certain degree, lack of respect in terms of communication. I know what you're saying about returning the phone call. I try to respond to all my emails. It's gotten harder over the last several years um, because I view it as, as a lack of respect. Um, so you have to kind of prioritize and source through your emails and calls and, and just try to manage as, as best as possible. The thing about relationships is it's all about trust and it's really hard to scale trust. I don't care how much technology you have moving forward. Um, nothing, nothing will ever replace a human handshake. Just, it, it just won't. It's hard uh, to get that human right? handshake, though, I mean, from their perspective. I feel bad for them. I've always felt bad for the the the, the sales guys with these vendors. I mean, I know, you know, I, I went up, you know, being in corporate, being on the buyer side for so long. I just heard so many people talk so poorly of these of these folks who are out there hustling, you know, doing what you know, doing their job, and 
And I just, and, and to be quite honest with you, I've seen a lot of them treated quite poorly and it's disgraceful. But I, you know, it's hard for them to build trust and it's hard for them to build a relationship if people won't even return their text and if there's zero communication. At some point, you got to have that, that face-to-face. But getting it is just really, really difficult. I mean, you have to be in a different position. You have to be, I think, not in just one position, maybe. You have to be in several different positions and to, uh, to be able to offer up several different opportunities to do business, it seems to me. It's just so incredibly difficult. Um, I don't know how they overcome it. Do you, do, what, what do you suggest? I mean, do you have any suggestions? I mean, I mean, obviously. Sure, I, I do. Yeah, yeah. I do. Um, I've had over the last four or five years, companies call me and ask, hey, Robert, you have this huge trusted relationship with the community, the government, the CISOs, et cetera. What do you recommend to us as a company? I, I would say, take your money from the booth at RSA or Black Hat or wherever it is, and invest that in an offsite that is a thought leadership working uh, offsite that where you're not pitching your product. So let's say they're in the insider threat or DLP or um, identity management space or the threat intelligence space. Do an offsite. Invite 12 to 20 CISOs. Um, have a discussion. Uh, do it in a nice place like in the wine country or a Pebble Beach or I don't know, someplace that's that's um, going to differentiate you from uh, all the other noise and, and do it well. But make it about building trust, building relationships with, with those CISOs, and, uh, and then start from there. Good idea. Robert, it was so good to have you on the show. Always very interesting things to say. I love your stories. I love Sinet, huge Sinet fan. And I hope you come back often. We got a lot of things to do together. George, always an honor, a pleasure. You're a solid guy. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure. Hope to do it again. All right, folks, it's time to go. But before we do, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio. The voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 